Hey guys, what's up? It's Zemet here with Cartel Aristocrats cast number 35. This week, Doug couldn't make it as he has other things going on, but we were lucky enough to snag one of the top finance personalities out there, one of the hardest grinders, fresh back from a GP, if you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves. I don't know what order to go in. Doug's not here. Well, who's talking? I guess me. Uh, my name is Jim Casal. You can find me on Twitter at phrst underscore. Uh, I'll go after Jim, I guess. Uh, Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Right every Monday uh, over at MTG Price, and I do MTG Fast Finance, the podcast. Uh, what's up, guys? I'm Edward Nguyen. Uh Buyer from Corbin's Game Store. Happy to sub in this week. You guys can check me out on Twitter, edwin13. Uh, no events coming up for the rest of the year, thankfully. Milwaukee was the last Grand Prix, so I have a bit of a hiatus before I pick things back up in Louisville in 2017. And I'm Sells Magic. You can find me every Monday on Card Confidence on Twitter at Sells Magic, or if you're watching this and commenting live on our YouTube, I'm at Lengthy Zemmet on YouTube. Uh, yeah, Ed, you went pretty much everywhere. You were in Madrid, you were in Amsterdam, now you're finally back in the Midwest, and your audio sounds a lot better. Now, this weekend we had a couple things happen for each of the cast members that I sort of want to go into and talk about. Let's start off with, you know, salt is always a reoccurring theme on this podcast for those listening. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jim, you went to an RPTQ this weekend. Do you want to sort of explain what happened? I showed up, I got my Snapcaster Mage promo, I lost two rounds, and I went. I got home before lunch. And so are you officially quitting Magic now because you're posting these high-end cards and you're like, oh, this is bullshit? Um, I'm not quitting Magic. Like, I'm still going to play EDH in like, casual formats, but uh, the competitive drive to try to do better than I did the last Pro Tour has waned significantly. It's a lot of money and it's a lot of time to put into, like, get to where I want to be next so I just feel like I'm better off spending all this time and money on stuff on my house and just paying off student loans and being a more responsible adult. Everyone knows that you should prioritize magic over everything else. To be That's... fair I'm selling the foil burn deck not the non-foil burn deck so like I still, ha I still had two copies of it so I'm not, I'm not completely out of it. Yep. And Ed, you went to GP Milwaukee for those who couldn't attend or might have seen some of the bylaws boards that were taken, that were taken, pic God, I'm horrible with the English language. People were taking pictures of the buy boards and tweeting them. Was anyone like buying certain things more than anything else? What was the sort of cards that you guys saw come to the buy booth, come to the, your booth more that people were trying to get rid of and what were they trying to pick up? Uh, so I wasn't, <clears throat> Excuse me. I wasn't with Corbin's Game Store. I was hanging out with the Moose Loot guys this weekend, so we kind of had an odd subletting arrangement with uh, with them. So I was there to hang out. For the most part, it was kind of the, clearly like the year end. I think people were pretty done. Milwaukee was pretty underwhelming. It was my first time in Wisconsin. It's been snowing nonstop since Saturday. A lot of people had a hard time getting out this morning because of the weather that just that, that just took over the Midwest. Um it wasn't anything exciting. No one had anything that was notable other than <clears throat> Dan Bach, who was there with, you know, his usual five buyers and uh, like a hundred million dollars to spend. So he pretty much just bought everything. It there was nothing really exciting or notable in Milwaukee. So it was very clear that you definitely had people looking to cash out towards the holidays. 
uh, just to have the extra spending money, but <clears throat> it wasn't anything worth writing about. So I have a question for you uh, about Musloot. I've had good intera- good interactions with them at Providence and other places. Now, obviously, Bernie, the one of the guys that works there, is a great guy. Um, at Providence, I saw him begrudgingly pick up graded power. It was a Black Lotus and some other stuff, and he didn't really want it, but I guess the price was, you know, there's a price for everything where you want to go ahead and buy the high-end stuff, right? So, like, when everyone's running out of cash in the room and you pick up a Lotus for the minimum that anyone else would have paid, I guess it feels okay. Now, did you see a lot of power being moved on the floor, or was this just everyone either came to play or they came to sell, and then they just left right away? No one was really grinding the trade tables away, or no one was really looking for some of this higher-end stuff. I just sort of want to know like, what you observed on the trade tables and at the booth of what was moving. Was it high-end stuff, or was it like expeditions or casual stuff? I think literally the highest end stuff I saw was someone with like a small stack of duels. There was like almost no power came over to the booth. There's very little, like I, we had like a few beta duels come our way, but there was like no power, no high end vintage stuff. The room was pretty dead. Friday was one of the slowest Fridays I've ever seen at Grand Prix and Sunday because the weather was so bad. It started snowing on Saturday and it pretty much snowed the entire night. I really don't think a lot of people came back. The Super Sunday series, the last one, I think they only had like hundred, like fifty people or something. So it was like by Sunday, like by four p.m., almost every vendor was gone. We were the last vendor there, and the only reason we were there was because I was trying to buy from the Moose Loot guys. Uh, we stayed late, but by four p.m., every vendor was gone, basically. And that was echoed by one of the other vendors, Michael, over at Tales of Adventures when I had talked to him about the tournament size and what people were selling. Uh, now, I want to congratulate Jim. I don't know if we talked about this last week. You correctly po- called Etherworks Marvel almost doubling. I mean, what what research did you put in to, to find this good spec that it would go right back up? I mean, I played it the Pro Tour. I knew what kind of card it was. I know what it can do. And when people started saying that the format had devolved into just two decks in standard, I knew that there was no possibility that it could stay like that because the biggest problem with Aetherworks Marvel is that you're like, there's like 30 cards that you have to play that are always the same because you need to have energy and you need to have the Aetherworks Marvel. But the rest of the cards that help you beat all your matchups vary so highly depending on what people are playing. So when there's less decks to target, that deck just gets better because people just don't have the cards that they need to beat an Emrakul or whatever that you're casting off of Aetherworks Marvel. So my assumption was that it was just going to get better after Aether Revolt when we get more energy cards that are presumably better than the ones that we have or more flexible, but it turns out that people just realized that you could play Aetherworks Marvel again and just not go as all-in and just play cards that you could actually cast for real amounts of mana and you'd still be able to win. And, of course, we had no coverage this weekend of any event thanks to Wizards of the Coast. Travis, you normally use these type of events to hedge your bets or speculate on something before it pops. Was there anything that you saw or that you made a move on this weekend that you picked up, maybe, or that you sold? Uh, well, I mean, you're, you're griping about there being no coverage, but there was nothing to cover, right? Like, there <laughs> there was no events uh, aside from Milwaukee. There was, because this was RPTQ weekend, Um no, this weekend was pretty quiet. I picked up a bunch of Avatar of Slaughters uh, late this past week um, because I noticed the TCG supply had gotten pretty low. Uh, I actually picked up a bunch of Aetherworks Marbles too last week on like Saturday morning when 
it was clear that like all three, the Star City Invitational and the two, uh, <clears throat> the two GPs were loaded with Marvel works. Um, you know, this weekend we mo- I mostly spent getting uh, Scry Land back up again. That was that was my big magic contribution. Do you want to go ahead and talk about exactly what that entails for our listeners that may not know? Oh yeah, uh, Scryland, Scry.land is uh, just a website that maps uh, event pins all uh, over Google Maps. So like you can go and it'll show you all of the PPTQs and GPs and stuff. Um, so it's still in beta, but we're we're building it because like the Wizards Event Locator is just so terrible. So this is a way to <clears throat> actually see what's going on. And I got third at Standard Showdown. I'm now a competitive Magic player that knows how to win tournaments. Woohoo! I played mono black aggro, and I got third. And I'm not quite sure how. Um, other than that, though, I noticed the same thing that Ed did. We had a lot of people come into the shop going to FNM to sell out or just to like downsize because they wanted to buy these Christmas gifts. And the assumption that their tax return or refund in a couple months will help them through the rest of the year, I guess. I don't know. Magic players are never good at spending money. I think we can agree on that. I think they're great at spending money. They're just really bad at saving money. Right, yeah, that's what I meant. There was a lot of people that came in with, like, uh, I, I think the mindset of players has changed, and I know we've all sort of talked about this or written about this, but a lot of players that were selling to me on Friday had stacks of fetch lands, stacks of, like, these specs, like Jace Ren's Prodigy, and I guess they just grew impatient after a whopping six months and said, you know what, this is dead money. I need this for other stuff. But it's sort of interesting to see the shift from no one, like very few people knowing about finance besides the vendors and people that tracked MTG finance back in four, back like four years ago to, oh, Shocklands are a sure bet, which they really haven't turned out to be. Oh, Fetchlands are a sure bet. Well, they keep going down. Oh, Flip Jace, it, it's seen a little bit of a bump because of Frontier, but it hasn't really changed in price that much. So all these cards that every single player thinks is going to go up, they're either too impatient to hold on to it or they're everyone's thinking the same thing. So it's just interesting to see the like five or six people walk in and sell me the exact same stuff all weekend where they're all just like, Oh, this was a surefire bet and it didn't pan out. So the, the real way to make money is to look for things that, you know, not everyone's looking at or get there beforehand. I know Jason Alt uses EDH rec a lot in order to predict EDH spikes. And yeah, that's a really good resource. That's curious just because, I mean, it's not like there was no expectation Jace was going to pop already, right? Like that wasn't a card that we thought the price was going to move on already. That's uh, a much longer term projection. Uh, Fetches too, I feel like, I don't remember hearing a lot of people saying, sell your Fetches because they're not, they're just going to drop from here. That I think that caught a lot of people off guard. I don't really own any, but uh, I mean, do you guys have any? Yeah, I've got a lot. Was that on purpose? Like were you holding them expecting the price to go up? This is literally me buying them for a dollar less than I can flip them to Hyria or another place at. It, it, that's something where like the sp- I'm okay having a low spread because I always get them every week. But I mean, like when it was getting close to cons rotation, were you grabbing them hoping they were going to go up? Uh, yeah. I mean, we offer eighty percent trade in, which is way higher than anyone else in the area. So people were trading fetches in for whatever, and we just sort of picked up a ton. And then people come in and trade for those fetches, and it, it just sort of grows itself. If that I would ima- makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine as a store owner, fetches are one of those things that there's always going to be players looking to sell and buy. 
uh, so like it's easy for you to keep those. They're very liquid, right? So like for you, yeah. you don't have you don't have to spec on them. But for people like Jim and I who like don't have that out, like we have, you know, we would have to be looking them at the cons rotation. Be like, all right, if I can get whatever flooded strand for nine dollars, do I think it's going to go up from here? Uh, and I didn't pick any up. I I, I decided it wasn't worth it because um, I, I wasn't confident. Although I think a lot of people, the general consensus was like they ex people expected it to move up, but it just didn't. I mean, I sold all of my extra copies when rotation came because they were just way too expensive, and there was no way that they were going to see that expensive after they left standard because we were just coming out of a standard like metagame where you had to play like eight to twelve fetches in your deck, and that that doesn't even exist in modern really. So the demand could not have been higher at rotation, but there's definitely probably some time in the near future where. Like especially blue ones, I think are probably getting close to the point where they might be worth buying again because they were so much more expensive during their when they were in standard than they are now. And if we for some reason don't get another Zendikar fetchland, like an enemy color fetchland reprint in the next couple of years, with how popular modern is, people are just eventually just going to say, "Fuck it, I don't need scalding tarns. I'll just play polluted delta and flooded strand, and that's probably good enough." And we've um, seen a we've seen a shift, you know. Uh, I, you had talked about this actually right before we started uh, recording this, Jim. Legacy, yes, we have Louisville coming up, and people are going to make money, but it's starting to go down a lot because Star City drops support. The real demand for these formats, and I, I think Ed actually would have a better uh, grasp on the situation. In my opinion, is that all these all the Legacy and Vintage demand is now coming from Japan, where it's you know these even with Frontier, which we'll get to. Uh, a lot of people in Japan want to pick up legacy and vintage cards because there's such a good scene over there right now compared to the U.S. where local player bases are thinking, well, why do I want to have a $3,000 deck when the SCG tour is only going to pay me out of Monopoly money or prize tickets? Uh, before, before Ed chimes in, I just want to point out that that's got to be a um, a geogra uh, geography thing, right? Like legacy is more popular in Europe where it's easier to travel to those events and Japan's even smaller. So you haven't even... Uh, more, um, more condensed player base of those formats. You know, Tokyo's got you go to Nakabata, and there's a card, card store in every uh, every block. It just basically the U.S. is too large to support legacy because there aren't there isn't you. It's hard to get a critical mass in any one city. Uh, yeah, like <clears throat> lots of good points there. Like the the thing about Japan is like Japan is just so incredibly densely populated that even though. Like in Akiba, like there's literally like a hundred stores in there. Like some of the biggest chains, like Big Magic and Hobby Station, they have. I think like Big Magic has something like 140 stores throughout uh, Japan, and they, they they can continue to host these things because players just have so many options to play wherever they want, literally whenever they want. And with Europe, um, there were, <clears throat> back in 2007 when the Euro was at the all-time high, and there was a massive influx of those legacy cards to Europe, most of them are actually still there. So getting things like duels, legacy staples, it's just so much more accessible than it is here. Cause in the U S like you really have to look at like the like super um, <clears throat> metropolitan areas. Like you're looking like the Pacific Northwest, like Seattle, Portland has a reasonable legacy vintage scene. I know out here in the Northeast, there's just so many people here that they can support legacy. But if you're living even in like some smaller areas, there's probably not enough people in some place like, I don't know, like Dallas, Texas or something. It's a big city, yeah, but how many people can reasonably play Legacy in an area like that? Actually, that's, so. a, that's a really big 
a good point. Like that's what happens in Orlando. Like Orlando's a pretty big city. There's a lot of people that live here, but there just isn't that much like legacy. There's not not many reserve list legacy cards available in Florida. They just they just don't exist. South Florida Magic's like the only the only legacy scene down there, right, Jim? From what I understand. I mean, like, there's legacy tournaments here and there, but, like, there's no, like, weekly legacy thing in any of the major cities except for Miami. Okay. Well, luckily, in the great state of Missouri, we still fire legacy quite often. So, go Missouri. I wonder if there is enough card supply in all of South Dakota to recreate, like, the top eight from the latest vintage tournament. Like, if the raw number of power card of power exists in that and within the state boundaries to put those lists together. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just, like, so many people are hard-pressed. Like, again, like uh, like Jeremy had mentioned, it's just so hard to justify holding on to these cards, right? Like, how much enjoyment do you really get out of your legacy and vintage cards? Like, Card Kingdom, like, out in Seattle, they actually hold a uh, vintage FNM uh once a month which is which is pretty sweet like i'm sure a lot of people want to get in on that but like realistically like that's like one and out of like you know four thousand stores that can that host fnms or whatever so and even myself like i have a, like my legacy deck is almost entirely full full of japanese i'm actually working on getting beta duels but i'm considering just not even bothering and actually just getting rid of the deck entirely um at buy list if I have to because there's no point owning like a ten thousand dollar deck if you play it. I've literally shuffled the deck up maybe twice in once in Chiba and once in Columbus since I moved out to New York. So there's just no reason for me to hold on to that deck. And the other thing that you have to keep in mind is Seattle's an expensive place to live in. So the amount of money you're making, it's sort of a I'm not an economist by any means, but you know, you make more money, so things cost more, but that percentage of money that you take home at the end of the day after your living expenses is cheaper for someone in Seattle, I would argue, uh, to buy like an eternal deck than someone in Missouri where the average income's way lower. So Yeah, that's pretty well. If that, that makes sense. Yeah. Someone who uh, lives in New York City pays less for, you know, a car relatively uh, than somebody who lives in West Virginia. Yep. Um, so sort of getting back to, you know, these, these specs that people haven't picked up on yet, we can all agree the easiest way to make money is to buy bulk that hasn't been picked or to like buy bulk rares. Cause there's literally no downside. If Doug was on this cast right now, that's all he would be echoing. But, um, we're starting to see this new wave of these new commander decks pushing everything up. And this year it was really well pronounced, especially with how much value the commander 16 decks have in them. Atraxas, like the average contents of an Atraxa deck is still around $60 mid. If you can find one at your brick and mortar or local game store. The average value? Because the box changes. Oh, estimated value, whatever. I mean, he he could be saying like the average value on TCG because that changes pretty much every day. Yeah, so, that's not what he was saying though. <laughs> I, I know that's what he's not what he was saying, which you, it could be construed that way. Like you know, a Traxa could go up and down fifty cents in a day, and technically that's the average value. Yep. Um, but you know, we saw a Traxa really spike a ton of cards. Doubling season is now $65 mid, which is really good if you bought in when they were even 30 at, what was it, at the beginning of this year? I think that's when Travis bought in. Uh, Ashnod's Altar, stuff like that, where 
these are these sort of hard to find, even though it was just printed in Eternal Masters with Brea starting to take off. We have um, the Time Spiral Blue Rare Teferi. Arkham Daxon, is that its name, I think? Arkham yeah, Daxon went up because of the Commander deck. And like, there's a lot of, of there's a lot of places to make money. And with how pronounced it was this year, I think next year, as soon as he, you know, Jason had said, and I'm using, I'm talking to Jay about Jason a lot because he, uh, he truly understands EDH and like the demand behind it and which cards are going to go up. And that's what he sort of makes his MTG finance content about is because he, he knows all this stuff, but uh, it took weeks after these commander decks came out for these cards to start going up because commander players bought the deck and then they said, well, what can I make improvements on? But I think next year, we will see commander players buy out the cards before the decks come out as soon as the cards are spoiled instead of going the other way. And one no, more thing. One more I just want to I, interrupt I, you. I just want to interrupt you. No, I. here's why. Because you can buy out cards, hypothetically, who, whichever person did that, and all the commander players will eat those copies up right away. And for a finance person, as soon as an uh, EDH card gets spoiled next year, that's a... Uh, going to be a popular commander the finance people will just buy it out before the decks come out i mean that would have been true this year right like that opportunity still existed when brea was spoiled uh when Atraxa was spoiled and it didn't happen and you're talking about a player population edh players which is overwhelmingly not paying any attention until they open the deck and put it on their table so this is a player base that i think is going to move very slowly towards moving um before they have the decks in their hands all right. Well, you do raise a good point, and we will see what happens next year. Would so, you? I just want to. I, I didn't get my point in, man. Yeah. So, at my job, I recently found some new guys got hired, and all they do is play EDH. That's all they do, all, all forever and ever and ever. And the the thing I think I learned most about the player type that he is and the friends that he has are. You don't. They don't build the deck ahead of time in their head, and they don't go out and buy the cards and like. They don't, they don't go out and buy singles. They take the pre-con deck, and then they take some stuff out that they don't like and add some new stuff that they do like, but they don't, they don't come up with a deck from scratch. Like I, I realized based on how I bought the cards for my decks and how they bought the cards for their decks that I should have probably bought more copies of the things that I ended up buying, but what, what most people are going to end up doing is they're not going to know, they're not going to think about the card interactions. Like They don't go to like Magic Cards that info and like look up every single planeswalker and try to like figure out what the best planeswalkers are for the attracts of deck. No. What they're gonna do is they're gonna play with the deck and then they're gonna play against their opponent who has that card and they'll be like, man, that card's great. I want it in my deck and then they go buy it. Or they'll find someone else that also has the same deck and they'll ask them what they put in and they'll be like, man, that sounds like a sweet idea. I also need a contagion engine for my deck. I'm gonna go buy that now. None of them thought anything about this before the decks came out because they had no idea what they were gonna play. And they're not going to take a part in any of the other decks to make this one. So what ends up happening is that even if you if you take the commanders, like literally this is what you could do next time. Take the commanders, make a deck list, don't use any of the pre-con cards, and then just buy the ones that you decided on, like other than lands, unless it's like a land that does something special. And literally if you would have done that, you would have had all the cards that people would have wanted. Is there anything that you want to add to this, Ed? Uh, <clears throat> like I, so, so the problem with like buying out the cards first is if it's the way EDH players, a lot of them seem to operate is there. A lot of them are very impulsive. Like I definitely see people in the case just kind of perusing and they just say, Oh, what's this card? They look at it and they just say, this would be sweet. In my EDH deck. 
So buying things out first and not giving the people the opportunity to actually buy those cards is a little counterintuitive to me because people have to be able to have kind of that uh, cascade effect, like Jim said, where, oh, could, like I have Contagion Engine in my deck. It's pretty sweet. You should try in your deck type thing. And then you start having that cascade effect where people, you know, get get rinsed by the contagion engine at their table and then they're inclined to buy it for themselves and then this demand kind of spirals out of control and that's how you start seeing things like the doubling season effect with uh atraxa or uh contagion engine etc so i i i think you're looking at it the wrong way i think you have to have the commander deck come first and then see the aftermath rather than trying to uh beat the commander players to the punch so like it's almost like the demand for doubling season doubles yes we do enjoy a good pun on this cast now and again you know i i this is i'm convinced that this is the exact reason why martin stromgald hasn't gone up more is because players don't know that it exists and even if they see it in a case they don't read it so the card would be awesome in a lot of places but nobody can nobody can nobody understands it i got you there because stores have actually started raising their bios on martin stromgold because i have like two copies i have a a binder or two of like reserve list cards and I looked up the buy list on it channel increased their buy list on it so maybe it's starting to take off or maybe they just sold out of copies but it is something that I started noticing uh when I read Sig's last article I started looking at all the prices of reserve list cards and like what hadn't been bought out or like what the spreads on some of these cards were you know you guys laugh about restore balance but I think I own more copies of Martin than I do that cheaper buy-in yeah Speaking of cheap buy-ins, Chainville, card went up. If you listened last week, you know why. I am down to 150 copies. I thought you said it was Lux Cannon. What are you talking about, Yeah, yeah. We had a commenter last week, whoever this is, you you insinuated that we were holding back knowledge from you and that how dare we not talk about our evil Lux Cannon buyout, even though at the end of the cast last week it was revealed that I had 1,100 copies of Chainville. So you didn't listen to the entire cast and you formed your own observations. But since then, I've gotten rid of 900 copies of Chainville on TCG and buy-listed quite a few. And it worked out. So never buy out cards, kids, because it's a gamble and I'm still sitting on a bunch of foil illusionist bracers. How much did you end up making on the whole Chainville thing so far? Probably about two grand. So You just, that right there just inspired somebody else to do it. Yeah, well, if you're going to buy out another card, you guys should buy Chainvale because I've got like 50 copies listed on TCG right now. So go buy out Chainvale. I think it'll be a $10 card. But long term, I think it'll be an $8 card. And it did hit $8 for three whole days. And I think the low the low is down to four now, whereas the low before was around a dollar. So, yep. Nice guy, Jeremy. Yep. Uh, moving on, because we know the finance community hates buyouts. Do you guys want to go ahead and talk about Frontier and why this is the best thing to ever happen? Oh my god, I can't wait till modern players catch on and realize what's going to happen. If it actually ever becomes good and gets supported, it's going to be one of the biggest problems for people that that want to play modern, I think. And why? Do you want to go into exactly why? Because you had a good argument earlier today on Twitter about your thoughts on this. So... The thing that's happening to Standard and Legacy to a lesser extent right now is what's going to happen to Modern if if Frontier becomes accessible and playable and people enjoy it. 
So the problem with standard and why attendance is so low is because modern decks got too affordable. And because they became so affordable, people decided to play modern instead of playing standard, which then in turn means that there are less standard players in general. Because at the end of the day, people don't own a deck for every format. The average player doesn't own a deck for every format. They probably own one constructed deck for one constructed format that they play on the regular. Or even not on the regular. It doesn't really matter that much. The point of the matter is, if, if Frontier becomes good and people enjoy playing it, and people that were playing standard that don't want to buy modern cards because they're too expensive or whatever decide to buy Frontier cards instead, and now there are a bunch of Frontier for, uh, frontier tournaments, then people just kind of stop playing modern because it's too expensive. Like, I, I, it's funny that like, it's say it like that, but like when modern got more affordable and some decks just got like, I don't want to say extremely cheap, but like Dredge is like less than $500 to build the whole thing. And that's a tier one competitive deck. If you spend $500 and doesn't get banned, which uh, I don't know, that's an argument for another day. Uh, if you assume that it's not going to get bad, you can play that pretty much every week without any problem and you just play it forever. Frontier is kind of the same thing. It doesn't rotate. So if you spend $200 on a deck or $300 on a deck instead of 6 or 7 or 8 or 9 or 2000 or whatever it costs for some of the modern decks, then you just play that forever and people are less incentivized to play modern. And part of the reason why modern got so popular is because it got more affordable and people just rather play the same deck forever and never, never, even if it's not good. So that put the squeeze on the other two formats because if you just don't have, like, if you're if you're not incentivized to play standard over modern and it doesn't cost you anything to play modern, why are you going to play standard? I uh, I am I find this reasoning suspect. I'm not completely on board with it. The main point here is all this is predicated on the idea that players only play essentially one format. Like they have to choose between standard or modern. I, I'm not convinced of that. You know, this is all anecdotal, but I didn't know anybody that played modern that couldn't also play standard whenever they wanted to. Every now and then, a season would come or go where they wouldn't bother. Maybe school was busy or something like that, so they'd hang around modern because they didn't have to work to keep up with modern, but they were too busy to deal with standard. But how many players are playing modern on a regular basis that find standard? too uh too difficult to approach I, I don't know if that's true half my customers feel that way they just bought into modern and sold out a standard so. but but do you think that that's because they they didn't have the money to put towards both or was there another reason that they got out of standard i i think that a lot of <laughs> you know it's weird it's weird because we had eldrazi winter for modern last year where like a lot of people got fed up with modern and then with standard we just have we had blue white flash versus black or green delirium for a while and, and etherworks fun uh thrown in there as well and a lot of my customers were like here's my standard collection i'll take all your modern cards and i was like great i can actually sell these standard cards or instead of these you know like golgari grave trolls and blood gas and you know there's not a huge demand locally for that sort of stuff so it was great but I had a lot of people just come and dump their standard collections to me. And like at, from a shop's perspective, that's awesome because we get way more people coming in for standard cards than we do for modern cards. So I'm just, from a financial perspective, I'm perfectly okay with that. 
I, I definitely agree with uh, both uh, Jeremy and Jim here. Like, from Jim's perspective, like, I think a lot of people, you're more the type of player you see the most often, your FNM style player, they're more incentivized to only have one or the other, probably because there's an upper limit to how much magic they can actually play. Obviously, like, someone like for Jim or myself, like, we actually have reason to always own a standard deck, always own a modern deck. Because we we need to be able to constantly be playing these formats for PPTQs or for GPs or whatever. But for your average person who doesn't really travel, they only play Magic once or twice a week, usually having one deck will be sufficient for them, mainly because they don't really see the need to play more. And I think the type of player that enjoys Modern probably doesn't necessarily care for Standard, and the type of player that plays Standard either can't afford Modern or they don't really care for the type of format that Modern is. I guess I guess I'm I'm not finding myself wanting to say that there aren't many players that don't play both. Like I agree there are a lot of players that play one or the other. I guess I'm I'm looking at it and going, well, I don't know if it's a money thing. I don't know if it's like they're going, Oh, modern's so cheap now I can play that instead of standard. I guess it, it seems to be more of a personality, more of a what your scene supports your time you know, how much time you have to invest those strike me more as the causes which i guess doesn't really change the end result that you have people split between formats um but i mean i guess that but then the result the reasoning behind it does come into play when you start talking about frontier and uh on frontier itself i mean not only is that format bad and i say that it's bad because it's shallow and if anyone ever actually tried to solve it it would be solved immediately uh i just i don't think that's gonna be I don't think that's a real format. It looks it looks cool now, but I think it's got a long time before that goes anywhere. People, I mean, like the best deck in the format is Dark Just Guy. People hated that. That and Collected Company. Like, yeah, I don't think people are in a rush to go play that. People are in a rush to do something new, but they're going to realize it's not new and be like, oh, never mind. I had between 10 to 15 locals talk to me last week about starting Frontier events, which we're starting this week because their incentive is a tier one deck for Mono Red is $40, which is like, three drafts sure but yeah i mean don't get me wrong it seems really cool right away and then they're gonna go to four events and lose to dark just guy two rounds every week and lose a collective company two rounds every week and be like god damn it i just played the standard format why am i playing it in frontier now do you want to know why frontier is good from both ed and my perspective because we sell cards that would never normally sell. Because I literally sold out of Siege Rhinos and, and Manus Riders off the basis of us announcing that we'd announcing that we'd be running Frontier events. Like, oh, I paid ten cents on these Mantis Riders and quarters on Siege Rhinos, and like you're taking them all from me. And if this format doesn't take off, then the cards are still worth the same when you try to sell them back to me. Well, I mean so that's like, yeah. I mean that's why how did how did he uh, started the format right? Like they wanted to be able yeah. to sell all of those cards. So it's great from your perspective. I just don't expect it to be as rosy as the players want it to be. And you have people like Maddie that are like championing, championing Frontier and like all these people on Twitter that are like, this is the best format ever. And I have an incentive to say, yes, this is the best format ever because it's going to make me free money. I mean, the people, Maddie and those guys who are uh, really jumping on the Frontier bandwagon, just like the idea of a magic format, a constructed magic format that's really cheap. That's what they like. But these these those guys, the ones who are most vocal about it, I don't think play that much magic. At least not, you know, they're not gonna be the ones who are sitting at two events a week at their local store or playing those. They're not gonna be the ones to deal with how often they're losing to the same deck over and over and over again. So I just I don't see how modern is gonna be any different than extended, which we have this problem of, oh, I'm just losing to the same standard decks again. You're gonna it's gonna be three or four years before you get further far enough out that the format begins to develop its own identity. 
Yeah, that's definitely a problem, and that's definitely part of the reason why I think Modern has so much appeal is because there are so many decks that you just, like, can't beat everything, so it just ends up looking a lot more diverse than it is because you can't have sideboard cards for Burn and Boggles and Dredge and Tron and whatever other deck you want to play against Jund. Like, you just can't have enough sideboard cards for all those matchups, so sometimes you just lose to decks that have no business being in the format. Yeah, so like I so like and only like that's all we can go off of. But I mean, Frontier it's definitely the type of thing that people have word really has gone out. I noticed like when I was in uh, Japan, like a lot of stores they were advertising. I definitely saw people playing it at stores. Uh, when I was in Madrid, Madrid the week after, um, lots of vendors had mentioned to me that there was a spike in interest. Like things like fetches, which already do very well in Europe, they like they saw an increase. Um, even this past weekend, a lot I just overheard a lot of people like casually talking about it coming by the booth, you know, express, expressing interests. Like obviously, fetches are ubiquitous, so you can't necessarily associate that with an increase in uh, frontier. But people were definitely talking. Like there's definitely like you know an increase in Jace, um, which is almost strictly a frontier card at this point. But it's the the word is out. People definitely know about it. People are definitely talking about it. Like Zemet, you said that uh, like your stars, your store is starting to host. I believe Face to Face is hosting a big uh, New Year's Eve um, Frontier Cash tournament. So the word is definitely out there. The interest is definitely picking up. Um, but I've had some conversations with other vendors, other people, and I think there is some. There, is, we are skeptical at best. Like it costs us nothing. Like yeah, I'll sell more Siege Rhinos, sell more rallies, sell more collected companies, things that aren't really moving because we just have a stack of sea trinos this big or whatever, but there is really no cost. And for us, like if it takes off great, like I'm probably looking into seeing if we can get an event going at our store, but there's a balance between being able to continue to not overwhelm the modern players because we have a stable modern base. We're trying to keep standard going with standard showdown. That's slowly pushing modern uh, standard attendance, excuse me. So I'm not sure if we're ready to necessarily just throw Frontier into there and maybe detract from some of these other formats. So we're skeptical. Like I know like I'm definitely skeptical at best, but it's such a low opportunity cost, there's not really any reason to kind of jump on board and see where it goes. Well, I mean, for the local stores, like you have no reason not to. Like why, you know, Jeremy said it perfectly. It's like I can sell Manus Riders now for a bunch of money. And if the format doesn't go anywhere, then I just buy them back for the same cost, you know, that I that I took them for originally because the demand didn't actually go up. So I, that's absolutely in favor of the stores to do. I guess, you know, this reminds me a lot of um of like Diablo and ARPGs, which is you start the new character or any RPG-ish type game. You start a new character, you're all excited. Oh, I'm gonna build it to be this type of character, and the possibilities seem endless, and you're really excited at the beginning. Things are changing really quickly, you're leveling up fast, you're building lots of cool decks. Like the experience changes rapidly and it's gratifying and it's all new. And then you hit that, then you kind of get past that honeymoon phase, and like you hit that stretch where you're doing the same thing for a long period of time and i think that's what frontier is going to end up looking like so there's going to be a lot of players going to be excited i think probably even for the first three months if the stores get running with it but i would be curious to see if that really persists once the format kind of settles and it's you know 30 percent dark dress guy 30 percent collected company 30 percent goblins and 10 percent decks that you try that don't go anywhere now it does refresh a little faster than modern does because of the impact of the sets but i don't know i i just think that everyone's excited because it's cool and new now but that won't be the case after three or four months 
very interesting discussions from the panel, of course. Do you guys want to move into what we're focusing on for 2017? What's going to go up? What's going to get reprinted? We've done a little bit of talk about what's going to get reprinted. They spoiled a god-awful sort of Feast and Famine art today that is horrible. It's not a sword. It's two swords. It, it's garbage. There's a sword on both ends. What is your problem? Everything with that art. And I literally just bought prints of the five Chris Ron art swords you're that just, look you're like just swords. So salty. You're such an old man. You're just like, oh, this this sword doesn't look like the swords that my grandfather used. Get off my lawn. I don't like it either. It looks like Blizzard art. It does. And the artist that does it that made it also does Blizzard art. So like it definitely looks like that in a way, but that doesn't mean it's bad. Sword art is really tough to do. Like, frankly, like I don't think there's been one good sword equipment art. Like, good. Sword of Fire and Ice from Darksteel. No, I don't think that was good. I think it was. I think it wasn't. I mean, like, I don't want. I'm not talking about technically. I'm just talking about like this is a cool art to look at. It's like eh, not really. It's just an inanimate object. It just sits there. All right. Well, if you want more art. Uh, discussion follow forth those mic on twitter but as far as financial stuff goes travis arbitrage has really paid off for us this year and this is not even moving into 2017 chromatic lantern spiked like crazy and we've both done pretty well off of that investment do you think that there's other commander cards bastion protector just spiked six whole dollars that are good you know you talked about what you have been picking up lately as far as commander cards go but is there anything that you're looking at otherwise that might pay off next year um well let's see i mentioned avatar slaughter i think rehashing the original commander stuff might be a good idea to kind of go back and look through there um you know see if there's anything hiding out uh some of the stuff from the commander set after that one possibly um i i don't have anything on my radar right now uh but i, I would definitely be looking at those sets to see if you can find find anything that's kind of the supplies drying up because because cards like that in that and like like bastion protector and things of that nature are you're going to see them you're not going to see them very often on like uh, mtg stocks or these sites that show price increases because they're going to be like five percent six percent if that it's just the supply is going to get gradually smaller so basically they're not going to be on your radar until there's 10 copies left somebody buys them out and then they spike and then you know that they went so really you kind of have to go and look for these preemptively find the stuff that's low supply and go from there i mean the only reason and I found out about Avatar Slaughters because I caught it at like four. I saw it went up like four percent, and then I looked it up on TCG Player. I was like, "Oh, there's actually not many copies here." So I grabbed a couple, and I and I think that'll that'll work out for me. But that's kind of what you got to do is you have to be really aggressive looking for EDH cards like this um, because you don't know they're moving until it's too late. I think duels are going to continue to fall after Louisville because there's not like a big legacy GP coming up after the beginning of the year. In North America, I think shocks are going to continue to do absolutely nothing. Uh, but commanders were sad, I think, for 2017. Ed, from a vendor perspective, do you think it's any different? Um, <clears throat> I guess I'll, I'll rant for a bit and then to kind of uh, round out this question since there's quite a bit going on here. So for 2017, the biggest things in the vendor industry, um, there's going to be a huge shift, I think. Uh, we see a lot of vendors either backing out of a lot of Grand Prix next year, we'll probably see some new blood. Um, the costs have gone up quite a bit. Uh, a lot of the TOs, mainly because it's condensed down to in the US, you have Channel Fireball, Pastimes, Star City, and Cascade Games are the only four TOs left in this industry. Um, for GPs, 
they're starting to ask a lot more. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder to profit off Grand Prix, especially with the way that the uh, Magic Finance has kind of taken a slight downturn in the past few months, ever since Kaladesh come out, has come out. Um, it's, it's, it's harder and harder to justify doing them. Um, from where I stand, I know as Corbin's Game Store, uh, I'll be upfront about this, we don't have any events currently booked for 2017. Um, at this time, that obviously may change in the future. Uh, we may try and squirrel in on some um, some closer ones for sure. But I will continue to be at these events grinding out. Uh, usually, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but it might be uh, like subletting with Moose Loot like what I did this weekend. Um, but it's as a store, it's harder and harder to justify doing it. I know, like, I think cool stuff is starting to trim back. That's what uh, I was going to talk about. Even cool stuff, which goes to every event, their buyers are like, yeah, we can't make Louisville. We can't make this one. We can't make that one. So, yeah. Uh, strike, like strike zone. We spoke to them. They're one of the legacy vendors, I guess. They've literally been around doing GP since, uh, you know, like 2004 or something. And I spoke with them, and they said, "I think next year they're literally doing two U.S. Grand Prix, um, which is which is a pretty big swing down from them. This year they did a fair amount, and next year I think they just literally have no interest in doing them at all." Um, Ed, can you speak briefly? Uh, you said Magic Finance has taken a downturn since the release of Kaladesh. Can you expand on that a little bit? I think just the general trend of cards kind of being either stable or plateauing or slightly being depressed in value. Um, Commander 2016 was kind of the first like boon we had where we saw cards kind of increase in price, but that's somewhat divorced from your standard um, standard staples, modern staples, the type of things that people most closely look at, um, which you kind of tie- nicely tied to my next point is um, this past weekend in uh Milwaukee, like one of my biggest targets and one of the things I've been trying to make a concerted effort is really learning the casual market. Um, mainly because commanders, like I, this happens every time a new commander set comes out and I'm always, it, it always just kind of punches me in the face. And it's, oh, I really should start looking at commander cards. And then I just kind of falls off my radar as I start focusing on, oh, like new coming standard sets or whatever. But like you guys have all shown uh, that you know Commander does very well. It really pays off to be on top of the Commander market. You know, if you had the foresight to see that, oh, doubling season is, you know, like probably like the single best EDH card in the sense of how ubiquitous it is, how powerful it is, and how unique it is. It literally creates a perfect storm of the type of card that will do very well. And um, but even for if, even if you're batting two for three in terms of, you know, powerful, unique, and cool, like, there's plenty of EDH cards and Commander cards that kind of fall in that category. Like, you guys have done well on, you know, Chromatic Lantern, that's ubiquitous. Chain Veil is unique, it's cool. You know, those types of things. There's plenty to capitalize on there. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really going to start looking at and trying to be more in tune with what I can do well. Um because a lot of the cards, a lot of casual cards, like I know, like it's easy to target the planeswalkers or whatever. But when I'm flipping through binders, like I'm really just looking for standard staples that flip quickly, modern staples that flip quickly, and I tend to kind of glaze over a lot of the EDH cards, mainly because one, I don't know the price off of them off the top of my head, and two, I simply don't play EDH or casual to really know what they are in the capacity that uh, I probably should, because they're they're real money makers, especially from a finance perspective, if you can really be on top of it. They're also a lot easier to get out of people's hands if they're competitive players. 
a lot of those EDH cards are the kinds of cards that, you know, the guy that has four smugglers copters and four of each dual land in his binder or whatever, and he has like a couple of rando EDH legends that he just never plays with. He just owns because he opens some prize packs. Those are much easier to get out of, you know, to get rid of from those types of players because they don't care about them. They don't want them. Where did Jeremy go? Oh. Hello. I dropped a stack of chromatic lanterns on the floor. Nerd. I've got this many chromatic lanterns. So, yeah. My bad. Casual markets where it's at. See, the other thing that I, I think that people don't realize as much about the casual market is like they're kind of like a black hole for cards because they just keep buying them and they never sell anything. Like EDH players especially are the kinds of players that will buy new cards for a new deck, they'll play it like three times, and then they'll find another deck that they want to build and then buy more cards for that deck, but not take apart the other deck because they might need it someday. Those are like the hoarder kind of people, and yeah. and it's it's really unusual to find an EDH player that doesn't have at least five decks. We literally sell hundreds of copies of Soul Rings a month out of a brick and mortar shop, like not even online. Just like people come in and they say, "I'd like five Soul Rings, please," and like it's it's crazy. And that's why I bought Star City out of Soul Rings for their one dollar sale. Yay! So you didn't buy them all. You're full of shit. Uh, no, because I managed to pick up the last 400 copies on Sunday before their sale ended, and they never restocked. Therefore, I would argue they were out of $1 copies of Soaring. Uh, you're not stretching the truth. So, meh. Anyway, we go through a lot of Soarings. It's true. Yep. Do you guys want to go into Pick of the Week? Do we have a choice? No. All right, everyone. It's time for pick of the week. There will be no singing of this song. Uh, you guys can deal with it. Travis, since you're complaining, do you want to start off with what your pick is this week? No, I wanted you to start singing because I had to don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. We should, do, we should have a, a fan, a listener, go back to when you did sing, get the recording, and just have you play that recording. It, it'll make us all feel a lot better. Yep. Be right back deleting that episode. There's like three of them, I think. Yep. Yeah, there's quite a few. Yep. Ed, do you have anything for pick of the week? Coming uh, fresh back from looking at all the booths? Uh, I, I had mentioned this the last time that I was on here, and I still stand by Elder True Mythics, Emrakul, and Grimflare. Those two... The price is somewhat stable, though, except the demand just the demand just is constantly there. Like literally, you just can't meet the demand. Uh, every time I get a Grim Flare, it sells. Every time I get an Emrakul, the promise end, it sells. Um, Aetherworks Marvel has kind of caused a little spike in uh, Emrakul. Grim Flare is just a, a standard of Black Green Delirium. People have literally zero interest in opening Eldritch Moon, so it's hard and hard to get them. I literally have to. My buy list is probably like close to like ninety percent of what TCG is. It's just so hard to get that card, and uh, they will always sell. So like, if I have to pay ninety percent <laughs> to get it, I have to pay ninety percent. Um, so if people if people don't have them already, I'd recommend get them. It's only going to be harder to find those cards from here on out. It's funny you say that because uh, <clears throat> uh, Emrakul. I've been watching the low on Emrakul on TCG. 
for a few weeks now, and it hasn't really budged too much. It's still around 17. Right now it's about 17 and a quarter, but we haven't seen the price go up too much on that one yet. It went up a lot right before the Pro Tour. They were like $14 then. I know $3 doesn't sound like a whole lot, but you don't play four of them in a lot of decks. You play like one or two. You play four in all the Marvel decks. It's true. I, I said you don't play four in a lot of decks. I didn't say you didn't play four in any decks. So I'm saying like the Black Green Delirium deck plays them and probably some other decks might also play Emrakul, but they don't play the full four. It's not like Grimflare or Liliana, the, la the Last Hope, where you need to play four of those in your deck. Well, I, in any case, uh, Ed, I, I'm with you. I like Emrakul, although I found it's uh, to be a rather stubborn price lately. Yeah, I think it, I think it's it's less about the price itself. It's if you can if you're if you're able to trade those in or if you're able to get them on the cheap, you will guarantee you'll be guaranteed a term profit on them because someone will always want them. And and it's more of that from my perspective. Or even like you know like a floor trader or whatever, you know, small time. Like if if you if you open one draft, you put it in your binder, it will move. Someone will want it. So and that's and that's more of that's more of the pick of the week from my perspective than necessarily just. What can I buy now that will go up next week? Type thing. So, no, that's fair. That's fair. A slight, yeah, a slightly different take than you know your guys trying to like find you know that dollar card that might be like four dollars next week. Jim. So my my pick of the not necessarily week, but just like in the near future, if you like the art on the Innistrad Snapcaster Mages, I would recommend purchasing them while they're not very popular in the end of the year. Because if they do get reprinted, which they probably will be in Modern Masters 2017, they will not have the same art. It's a invitational card, and the recent trend for cards that have magic players on them is when they reprint them, they don't print them with the art from the player anymore. So we can see that already with Dark Confidant. It got new art. Uh, Meddling Mage got new art when it got reprinted in Alara. Shadow Mage Infiltrator had the new art in the last Modern Masters. Um, if you go back way far, you will see some weird times where they reprinted with the original art, like the time shifted sheet has avalanche riders and, and shadow Mage infiltrator with the original art. And the think the first commander set had the solemn simulacrum with the original art. But since then they've been pretty much using new art for cards that had people's actual faces on them. So if you really like the snapcaster mage art, cause it's iconic, and you want to use those in the near in you know in the next couple of years or whatever, um, it's probably never going to get reprinted with that same art again. So you might want to look to start buying them. Well, I don't, <coughs> I don't have anything that I love right now for you guys, so I apologize. Although I'm poking through Commander right now, and uh, Primal Vigor is up to like ten bucks. I didn't realize that. I think that could probably hit twenty. Uh, yeah. Ed suggests restore balance. Yeah, that one's still a good one. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't have any specific cards for you guys this week, but I would tell you to check out commanders, the commander sets. I think some of the early sets probably have some some gems in there that we just haven't found yet. Can anyone tell me what the price of Reanimate is right now from Tempest? It's like seven dollars. Keep going. Really? Yep. So, double this digits. This is a card that has crept up over the last two weeks. Ten. It's higher than ten now. It has to be like it's probably like fifteen, right? Because that's the legacy deck that doesn't play almost any reserve list cards except yep. for Badlands. 
So I think it's like 13 or 14 mid, if I remember correctly. Uh, the Black Red Reanimator deck from Legacy, like even it, Badlands was on every single vendor's buy board at Madison, and Tales of Adventure was paying twice the market price to get Chancellor of the Annex in for next year's tournament that they're vending for that deck. Uh, so if you guys see these in binders, like hypothetically, if some if you don't do the what do you value this at, but like sort of do that if you catch my drift. So if you're like eight or nine dollars off on a trade, you're like throwing that reanimate, and they're like okay. Hypothetically, you could do that, but I think this will be a twenty dollar card. I don't think there's any place they can reprint this, and I think that we're gonna see it continue to go up because EDH players love this card as well. So I think this hits 20 by the end of 2017. I just don't see a place where they're going to reprint it next year. So Jeremy advocates stealing from people. I think I never said that. My actual pick is Awakening Zone. This card went up to $6, and it has fallen with the Planes Chase Anthologies reprint back down to $2,250. Pick these up and trade. They'll go back up. Do you think that's better or worse than the one that was in Battle for Zendikar? Um, you know, it's a good point. I I like almost the same card. Yeah, but if I remember correctly, Awakening Zone kept going up until Oath of the Gatewatch, and then it started trending down. No, 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 not Oath. Eldritch Moon. It was like Eldritch Moon or Shadows. It just kept going up, and then it leveled up and started going back down. So I think this card at 250... Like, I put my money where my mouth is, buying all of Haru's copies. They were obviously cheaper than American copies, but it doesn't seem like it's a bad place to put your money. Right. The question I'm asking is, how do you feel about From Beyond? Because it's a card that's almost exactly the same. I really like like picking up From Beyond in trade, and I like picking up Hedron Archive in trade, because that's a commander card that'll just keep going up after rotation. That's my stance. And I'm sorry to let you know that he's never going to say it right. What, are we talking about Eldrick Moon? No, we're not talking about that. <laughs> Eldritch Moon. All right, so has everyone gotten their picks out of the way? Where can people go ahead and find you guys? My name is Jim Casal. You can find me on Twitter at PHROST underscore. Uh, you can find my articles every other week on gatheringmagic.com and every week on modernnexus.com. <coughs> I'm <coughs> still... <coughs> He's dead. Yeah. Dying. <coughs> Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday on MTG Price, and I do uh, MTG Fast Finance, the podcast. Uh, I'm Edwin. I'm with Crohn's Game Store, uh, their main buyer. You guys can find me on Edwin13. Uh, temporary, temporary hiatus. No more Grand Prix for the rest of the year. Thank God. Been gone 30 weekends of the year. Uh, we'll be kicking back up in Louisville in 2017. And I'm Zemet. You can find me in the great state of Missouri. Um, next week, I don't know what's going on with recording. I plan to be out of the country for a while to take a nice siesta. So, yep. I don't know if you'll hear us next week. You can find me on Twitter at Zemet Sells Magic. You can find my articles on Card Confidant. 
You can uh, see me at GP Louisville. There's a ton of listeners going. Ed and I will be there, so you should annoy Ed with trades the entire time because everyone likes to trade. Uh, shout out to our special listeners who listened all the way through live. We really appreciate it. Shout out to the stacks of cards that everyone but Jim has behind them. If you're watching the video of this, we all, even Ed has like a stack of cards to his left. And yeah, thanks for listening to Cartel Aristic. What? There's, there's stacks of cards up here. Oh, these are all oh. fat pack boxes. All right. Shout out to giant stacks of cards. I just sold three copies of Chromatic Lender while we were recording this cast. So shout out to you, you casual all-star. And I don't think I sold any chain bills. So I'll have to check. Shout out to Chainville. You know, you won't, you may hate me, but I got to pay the bill somehow. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening to the Cartel Aristocrats cast number 35 with special guest Ed Wynn. And we will see you guys next week, maybe. <laughs>